0: Faculty are increasingly looking to research on teaching and learning to make informed decisions about their practice as a teacher and the policies their institutions put into place. In today's episode, we talk to a cognitive psychologist about recent research that will likely shape the future of higher education.
1: Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
0: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist,
1: and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer.
0: Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego.
1: Our guest today is Michelle Miller. Michelle is Director of the First Year Learning Initiative, Professor of Psychological Sciences, and President's Distinguished Teaching Fellow at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller's academic background is in cognitive psychology. Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. She co-created the First Year Learning Initiative at Northern Arizona University and is active in course redesign, serving as a redesign scholar for the National Center for Academic Transformation. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy in scholarly as well as general interest publications. Welcome, Michelle.
0: Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Today's teas are? I'm drinking a fresh peppermint-infused tea, and it's my favorite afternoon pick-me-up. And it looks like it's in a really wonderfully designed teapot. Well, thank you. And this is a thrift store find, one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, so I'm enjoying it.
1: I have Twining's Black Current Breeze.
0: And I'm drinking chai today. Pretty rough.
1: We invited you here to talk a little bit about things that you've been observing in terms of what's catching on in higher education in terms of new and interesting innovations in teaching.
2: Right. That's one of the things that I've really had the luxury of being able to step back and look at over this last semester and over this last spring when I was on sabbatical. One of the really neat things about my book Minds Online, especially now that it's been out for a few years, is that it does open up all these opportunities to speak with really engaged faculty and others such as instructional designers, librarians, academic leadership, educational technology coordinators, all these individuals around the country who are really, really involved in these issues. It's a great opportunity to see how these friends, how these ideas, how these innovations are rolling out. And these can be some things that have been around for quite some time and just continue to rock along and even pick up steam. And then some newer things that are on the horizon.
1: You've been doing quite a bit of traveling. You just got back from China recently? I believe.
2: I sure did. It was a short visit and I do hope to go back both to keep getting involved in educational innovations there and hopefully as a tourist as well. So I was not there for very long, but I had the opportunity to speak at Tsinghua University in Beijing, which is a really dynamic institution. It's been around for about a hundred years. For a while in its history, it specialized in Things like engineering education, polytechnic, but now it's really a selective, comprehensive university with very vibrant graduate and undergraduate programs that are really very relatable for those of us in the United States working in similar contexts. My invitation was to be one of the featured speakers at the Future Education, Future Learning Conference, which was a very interdisciplinary gathering of doctoral students, faculty, even others from the community who were all interested in the intersection of things like technology, online learning, MOOCs even, and educational research, including research into the brain and cognitive psychology, and bringing all of those together. And it was a multilingual conference. I do not speak Chinese, but much of the conference was in both English and Chinese, and so I was also able to really absorb a lot of these new ideas. So yes, that was a real highlight of my sabbatical semester, and one that I'm going to be thinking about for quite some time. I should say that part of what tied in there as well is that... That Minds Online I've just learned, is going to be translated into Chinese, and that's going to come out in May 2019. So I also got to meet with some of the people who were involved in the translation, start to put together some promotional materials, such as videos and things like that. Cool.
1: Excellent.
0: So you've had an, a good opportunity as you've been traveling to almost do a scavenger hunt of what faculty are doing with evidence-based practices related to your book. Can you share some of what you've found or heard? this theme of evidence-based practice and really tying into the findings
2: that have been coming out of cognitive psychology for quite some time, that really is one of the exciting trends and things that I was really excited to see and hear from so many different quarters. I've visited different institutions. And so I would say, Definitely, this is a trend that is continuing and is increasing. There really does continue to be a lot of wonderful interest and wonderful activity around these very cognitively informed approaches to teaching and what I think we could call scientifically based and evidence based strategies. One form this has taken is Josh Eiler's new book. It's called How Humans Learn, the Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. This is a brand new book by a faculty development professional and a person coming out of the humanities, actually, who's weaving together, even from his humanities background, everything from evolutionary biology to classical research in early childhood education to the latest brain-based research. He's weaving this together into this new book for faculty. So that's one of the things that I've noticed. And then there's the issue, which I think is another great illustration of this in practice, which is the testing effect and retrieval practice.
1: One of the nice things is how so many branches of research are converging. Testing in the classroom, brain-based research, and so forth, are all finding those same basic effects. It's nice to see such robust results, which we don't always see in all research and all disciplines.
0: And just breaking down the silos in general... The things are all related and finding out what those relationships are, exploring those relationships is really important. And it's nice to see that it's starting to open up.
1: We should also note that when you visited here, we had a reading group and we had faculty working on trying to apply some of these concepts and they're still doing that and they still keep making references back to your visit. So it's had quite a big impact on our campus.
2: This wasn't true, I don't think, when I first entered the teaching profession, and even to an extent when I first started getting interested in applied work, in course redesign, and in faculty professional development, you would get kind of this pushback or just strange looks when you said, oh, how about we bring in something from cognitive psychology? And now that is just highly normalized, and it's something that people are really speaking across the curriculum and taking it and running with it in a lasting, ongoing way, not just as, oh, well, that was an interesting idea. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But really, people making some deep changes, as you mentioned. This theme of breaking down silos. I mean, I think if there's kind of one umbrella trend that all of these things fits under, it's that breakdown of boundaries. So that's one that I keep coming back to, I know, in my own work. So the idea of retrieval practice, drilling down on that one key finding, which goes back a very long way in cognitive psychology. I think of that as such a good example of what we're talking about here, about how this very detailed effect in cognition, and yet it does have these applications across disciplinary silos. Now, when I go to conferences and I say, okay, raise your hand, how many people have ever heard of retrieval practice? How many people have ever heard of the testing effect? How many people have heard of the book, Make It Stick, which really places this phenomenon at its center? And I'm seeing more hands raising with retrieval practice, by the way, we're talking about that principle that taking a test on something, that retrieving something from memory actively has this huge impact on future memorability of that information. As its proponents like to say, tests are not neutral from a memory or from a learning standpoint. And while some of the research has focused on very kind of stripped down laboratory style tasks, like memorizing word pairs, there are also some other research projects showing that it does flow out to more realistic learning situations. So more People simply know about this. And that's really the first hurdle, oftentimes, with getting this involved disciplinary, sometimes jargon riddle research out there to practitioners and getting it into their hands. So people have heard of it and they're starting to build this into their teaching. As I've traveled around, I've loved to hear some of the specific examples and to see it as well crop up in scholarship of teaching and learning. Just recently, for example, I really got into the work of Bruce Kirchhoff, who is at University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and his area is botany and plant identification. He has actually put together some different really technology-based apps and tools that students and teachers can use in something like a botany course to rehearse and review plant identification. He says in one of his articles, for example, that there just isn't time in class to really adequately master plant identification. It's just too complex of a perceptual and cognitive and memory test to do this. So he really built in from the get-go very specific principles drawn from cognitive psychology. So the testing effect is in there. There's different varieties of quizzing, and it all is about just getting students to retrieve and identify example after example. It brings in also principles such as interleaving, which we could return to in a little bit, but has to do with the sequencing of different examples. There's spacing, so that's even planned out exactly how and when students encounter different things that they're studying. It's really wonderful. So, for example, he and his colleagues put out a scholarship of teaching and learning article talking about how this approach was used effectively in veterinary medicine students who have to learn to identify poisonous plants that they'll see around their practice. This is something that can be time-consuming and very tough, but they have some good data showing that this technology-enhanced, cognitively-based approach really does work. That's one example. Coincidentally, I've seen some other work in the literature also on plant identification Where the instructors tagged plants in Arboretum, they went around and tagged them with QR codes that students could walk up to a plant in the real environment with an iPad, hold the iPad over it, and it would immediately start producing quiz questions that were specific to exactly the plant they were looking at. So those are some of the exciting things that people are taking and running with now that this principle is out there.
0: What I really love about the two stories that you just shared was the faculty are really designing their curriculum and designing the learning experiences with the students in mind and what students need and when they need it. So not only is it employing these cognitive science principles, but it's actually applying design principles as well. It's really designing for a user experience and thinking about the idea that if I need to identify a plant, being able to identify it in the situation in which I would need to identify it in, makes it much more dynamic, I think, for a student, but also really meets them where they're at and where they need it.
1: And there's so many apps out there now that will do the plant identification just from imagery without the QR code that I can see taking it one step further where they can do it in the wild without having that. So they can build it in for plants that are in the region without needing to encode that specifically for the application.
2: I think you're absolutely right. Once we put the technology in the hands of faculty who, as Rebecca said, they're the ones who know where are my students at, where are the weak points, where are the gaps that they really need to bridge, and that's where their creativity is giving rise to all of these new applications. And sometimes these can be low-tech as well, or also things that we can put in a face-to-face environment. And I'd like to share just some experiences that I've had with us over the last few semesters in addition to trying to teach online with a lot of technology, I also have in my teaching rotation, a small required course in research methods and psychology, which can be a real stumbling block. It's a big challenge course. is kind of a gateway course to continued progress in our major. So in this research methods, course, some of the things that I've done around assessment and testing to really try again to stretch that retrieval practice idea to make assessment really a more dynamic part of the course and a more central part of the course to move away from that idea that tests are just this kind of every now and again, this panic mode opportunity for me to kind of measure and sort the students and judge them to make good on that idea that tests are part of learning. So here's some of the things that I've tried to do for well, one thing I took so time out of the class, almost every single class meeting is part of the routine to have students, first of all, generate quiz questions out of their textbook. So we do have a certain amount of foundational material in that course, as well as a project and a whole lot of other stuff that's going on. So they need to get that foundational step. Every Tuesday, they would come in and they knew the routine. You get index cards and you crack your textbook and you generate for me three quiz questions. Everybody does it. I'm not policing whether you read the chapter or not. It's active, they're generating it. And also that makes it something like frequent quizzing. That's a great practical advantage for me since I'm not writing everything. They would turn those in and I would select some of my favorites. I would turn those into a traditional looking paper quiz and hand that out on Thursday. I said, hey, take this like a realistic quiz. I had explained to them that quizzes can really boost their learning. So that was the justification for spending so much time on it. And then I said, you know what? I'm not going to grade it either you take it home because this is a learning experience for you. It's a learning activity. So we did that every single week. And so students got into that routine. The second thing that I did to really re-envision how assessments, testing, and quizzing worked in this particular course was something inspired by different kinds of group testing and exam wrapper activities i would seen particularly coming out of the STEM field where there's been a lot of innovation in this area. What I would do is we had these high stakes exams at a few points during the semester, but this class day after the exams, we didn't do the traditional "let's go over the exams." <laughs> That's kind of deadly dull, and it just tends to generate a lot of pushback from students. And as we know from the research, simply reviewing, <laughs> passing your eyes over the information is not going to do much to advance your learning. So what I would do is I would photocopy all those exams. So I would have a secure copy. They were not graded. I would not look at them before we did this. And I would pass everybody's exams back to them along with a blank copy of that same exam. I assigned them to small groups and I said, okay, here's your job. Go back over this exam, fill it out as perfectly as you can as a group. And to make it interesting, I said, I will grade that exam as well. So when you do with your group and anything you get over 90% gets added to everybody's grade. This time it was open book. It was open Google. it's everything Except it you can't ask me questions. <laughs> so you have each other. And that's where these great conversations started to happen. The things that we always want students to say. So I would eavesdrop and hear students say, oh, well, you know what? I think on this question, she was really talking about validity because reliability is this other thing. And they'd have a deep conversation about it. I'm still kind of going back through the numbers to see what are the impacts of learning? Are there any trends that I can identify? But I will say this, in the semesters that I did this, I didn't have a single question ever come back to me along the lines of, well, this question was unclear. I didn't understand it. I think I was graded unfairly. It really did shut all that down and, again, extended the learning that I feel students got out of that. Now, it meant a big sacrifice of last time, but I feel strongly enough about these principles that I'm always going to do this in one form
1: or another anytime I can in face-to-face classes.
0: This sounds really
1: familiar, John. <laughs> they I've just done the same or something remarkably similar this semester in my econometrics class, which is very similar to the psych research methods class. I actually picked it up following a discussion with Doug McKee. He actually was doing it this semester, too. He had a podcast episode on it, and it sounded so exciting. I did something a little bit different. I actually graded it, but I didn't give it back to them because I wanted to see what they had the most trouble with. And then I was going to have them only answer the ones in a group that they struggled with. And it turned out that that was pretty much all of them anyway. So it's very similar to what you did, except I gave them a weighted average of their original grade and the group grade and all except one person improved. And the one person score went down by two points because the group grade was just slightly lower, but he did extremely well and he wasn't that confident the benefits to them of that peer explanation and explaining was just tremendous. And it was so much more fun for them and for me. And as you said, it just completely wiped out all those things like, well, that was tricky because when they hear their peers explaining it to them, the students were much more likely to respond by saying, Oh yeah, I remember that now. And it was a wonderful experience and I'm going to do that everywhere I can. In fact, I was talking about it with my TA just this morning here at Duke and We're planning to do something like that in our classes here at TIP this summer, which I think is somewhat familiar to you from earlier in your academic career.
2: That is right. We do have this (laughs) connection. I was among, not the very first year, but I believe the second cohort of talent identification program students who came in, I guess you would call it now middle school, back then it was called junior high, and what a life-transforming experience. (laughs) We've had even more opportunities to talk about the development of all these educational ideas through that experience.
1: That two-stage exam is wonderful, and it's so much more positive because it didn't really take, in my class, much more time because I would have spent most of that class period going over the exam and problems they had. But the students who did well would have been bored and not paying much attention to it. The students who did poorly would just be depressed and upset that they did so poorly. And here they were actively processing the information, and it was so positive.
2: That's a big shift. We really have to step back and acknowledge that, I think. That is a huge shift in how we look at assessments and how we think about the use of class time Um, is not just, oh, my gosh, I have to use every minute to put the content in front of the students. Just the fact that more of us are making that leap, I think, really is evidence this progress is happening. And we see also a lot of raised consciousness around issues such as learning styles. That's another one that when I go out and speak to faculty audiences 10 years ago, you would get these shocked looks or even very indignant commentary when you say, okay, this idea of learning styles in the sense that, okay, there's visual learners, auditory learners, what I call sensory learning styles. VAK is another name it sometimes goes like. The idea that that just holds no water whatsoever from a cognitive point of view. People were not good with that. And now when I mention that at a conference, I get the knowing nods and even a few groans and people like, oh yeah, we get that. Now K through 12, which I want to acknowledge, it's not my area, but I'm constantly reminded by people across the spectrum that it's a very different story in K through 12. So setting that aside, but this is what I'm seeing that faculty are realizing they're saying, oh this is what the evidence says. And maybe they even take the time to look at some of the really great thinkers and writers who put together the facts on this. And they say, you know what, I'm not going to take my limited time and resources and spend that on this matching to styles when the styles can't even be accurately diagnosed and are of no use in a learning situation. So that's another area of real progress.
0: What I am hearing is, Not just progress here in terms of cognitive science, but a real shift towards really thinking about how students learn and designing for that rather than something that would sound more like a penalty for grade. Like, oh, did you achieve yes or no, but rather here's an opportunity if you didn't achieve to now actually learn it and recognize that you haven't learned it, even though it might seem really familiar.
1: Going back to that point about learning styles, it is spreading in colleges. I wish it was true at all the departments at our institution, but it's getting there gradually. And whenever people bring it up, we generally remind them that there's a whole body of research on this, and I'll send them references. But what's really troubling is in my classes the last couple years now, I've been using this Metacognitive Cafe discussion forum to focus on student learning. And one of the week's discussions is on learning styles. And generally about 95% of the students who are freshmen or sophomores typically come in with a strong belief in learning styles where they've been tested multiple times in elementary or middle school. They've been told what their learning styles are. They've been told they can only learn that way. It discourages them from trying to learn in other ways, and it does a lot of damage. And I hope we eventually reach out further so that it just goes away throughout the educational system.
0: You've worked in your classes, Michelle, haven't you, to help students understand the science of learning and use that to help students understand the methods and things that you're doing?
2: Yes, I have. I've done this in a couple of different ways. Now, partly, I get a little bit of a free pass in some of my teaching because I'm teaching either introduction to psychology or I'm teaching research methods where I can just happen to sneak in as the research example will be some work on, say, attention or distraction or the testing effect. So I get to do it in those ways covertly. I've also had the chance, although it's not in my current teaching rotation, I've had the chance to also take it on as in freestanding courses. As many institutions are doing these days. It's another trend. Northern Arizona University, where I work, has different kinds of freshmen or first-year student offerings for courses that they can take, not in a specific disciplinary area, but that really cross some different areas of student success or even well-being. So I taught a class for a while called Maximizing Brain Power" that was about a lot of these different topics, not just the kind of very generic study skills tips, get a good night's sleep, that kind of thing, but really some, again, more evidence-based things that we can tell students. And you can really kind of market it. And I think that we do sometimes have to play marketer to say, hey, I'm going to give you some inside information here. This is sort of going to be your secret weapon. So let me tell you what the research has found. So those are some of the things that I share with students, as well as when the right moment arises, say, after an exam or before their first round of small-stakes assessments where they're taking a lot of quizzes to really explain the difference between this and high-stakes or standardized tests that they may have taken in the past. So I do it on a continuing basis. I try to weave it into the disciplinary aspect, and I do it in these freestanding ways as well. And I think here's another area where I'm seeing this take hold at some different places too, which is to have these freestanding resources that also just live outside of a traditional class that people can even incorporate into their courses if say cognitive psychology or learning science isn't their area, that they can bring in because faculty really do care about these things. We just don't always have the means to bring them in, in as many ways as we would like.
1: And your Attention Matters project was an example of that, wasn't it? Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Oh, I'd love to. And you know, this connects to what seems to be kind of an evergreen topic in the teaching and learning community these days, which is the role of distracted students. And I know this past year, there just has been these one op-ed versus another. There's been some really good blog posts by some people I really like to follow, the teaching and learning community, such as Kevin Gannon, talking about, okay, Do you have laptops in the classroom? And what happens when you do? And so I don't think that this is just a fad that's going away. This is something that that people do continue to care about. And this is where the Attention Matters Project comes in. This was something that we conceptualized and put together a couple of years ago at Northern Arizona University with myself. And primarily I collaborated with a wonderful instructional designer who also teaches a great deal, John Doherty. So how this came about is, I was seeing all the information on distraction. I'm I'm really getting into this as a cognitive psychologist and going, wow, students need to know that if they're texting five friends and watching a video in their class, it's not going to happen for them. I was really concerned about what can I actually do to change students' minds. So my way of doing this was to go around giving guest presentations to different classes where people would let me burn an hour of their class time, and not a very scalable model. And John Doherty, respectfully, that's one of my presentations on this, and then he approached me and said, look you know, we could make a module and put this online and it could be an open access within the institution module so that anybody at, at my School can just click in and they're signed up. We could put this together. We could use some really great instructional design principles and we could just see what happens. And I bet more people would take that if, if it were done in that format. We did this with no resources. We just were passionate about the project and that's what we did. We had no grant backing or anything like that behind it. So what this is, is about a one to two hour module. It's a lot like a MOOC in that there's not a whole lot of interaction or feedback, but there are discussion forums and it's very self-paced in that way. So one to two hour mini MOOC that really puts at the forefront demonstrations and activities. So we don't try to convince students about problems with distraction and multitasking, we don't try to address that just by laying a bunch of research articles on them. I think that's great if this were a psychology course, but it's not. So we come at it by linking them out to videos, for example, that we were able to choose that we feel really demonstrate in some memorable ways what gets biased when we aren't paying attention. And we also give students some research-based tips on how to set a behavioral plan and stick to it. Because just like with so many areas of life, just knowing that something is bad for you is not enough to really change your behavior and get you not to do that thing. So we have students talking about their own plans and what they do when, say, they're having a boring moment in class or they're really, really tempted to go online while they're doing homework at home. What kinds of resolutions can they set or what kind of conditions can they set that will help them accomplish that? Things like the software blockers, you set a timer on your computer and it can lock you out of problematic sites. Or we learned about a great app called Pocket Points, where you actually earn spendable coupon points for keeping your phone off during certain hours. This is students talking to students about things that really concern them and really concern us all because I think a lot of us struggle with that. So we try to do that. And the bigger frame for this as well is this is, I feel, a life skill. Or the 21st century, thinking about how technology is going to be an asset to you and not detract from what you're accomplishing in your life. What a great time to be reflecting on that when you're in this early college career. So that's what we try to do with the project. And we've had over a thousand students come through. They oftentimes earn extra credits. So our faculty are great about offering small amounts of extra credit for completing this. And we're just starting to roll out some research, showing some of the impacts and showing in a a bigger way just how you can go about setting up something like this.
0: I like that this focus seems to be on helping students with a life skill rather than using technology as just a blame or an excuse. We're in control of our own behaviors and... Taking ownership over our behaviors is important rather than just kind of object blaming. So
2: looking at future trends, I would like to see more faculty looking at it in the way that you just described, Rebecca, as this is a life skill and it's something that we collaborate on with our students, not lay down the law. Because after all, students are in online environments where we're not there policing them. And they do need to go out into work environments and further study and things like that. So That's what I feel is the best value for faculty who are looking at this. Even if they don't want to do or don't have the means to do something really formal like our attention matters approach, just thinking about it ahead of time. I think nobody can afford to ignore this issue anymore. And whether you go the route of no tech in my classroom or we're going to use the technology in my classroom or something in between, Just reading over in a very mindful way, not just the opinion pieces, but hopefully also a bit of the research, I think can help faculty as they go in to deal with this. And really to look at it in another way, just to be honest, we also have to consider how much of this is driven by our egos as teachers and how much of it is driven by a real concern for student learning and those student life skills. I think that's where we can really take this on effectively and make some progress when we are de-emphasizing that ego aspect and making sure that it really is about the student.
1: We should know. There's a really nice chapter in this book called Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology that deals with these types of issues. It was one of the chapters that got our faculty particularly interested in these issues on to what extent technology should be used in the classroom and to what extent it serves as a distraction.
2: I think that really speaks to another thing which I think is an enduring trend, which is the emphasis on really supporting the whole student in Success and what we've come to call academic persistence, kind of a big umbrella term that has to do with not just succeeding in a given class, but also being retained, coming back after the first year. As many leaders in higher education point out, this is a financial issue. As someone pointed out, it does cost a lot less to hang on to the students you have instead of recruiting more students to replace ones who are lost. This is, of course, yet another really big gift in mindset of our own, because after all, we did used to measure our success by, hey, i plucked this many students out of this course, or look at how many people have to switch into different majors. Our major is so challenging. So we really have turned that thinking around, and this does include faculty now. I think that we did used to see those silos. We had that very narrow view of, I'm here to convey content. I'm here to be an expert in this discipline, and that's what I'm going to do. And sure, we want to think about things like, do students have learning skills? Do they have metacognition? are they happy and socially connected at this school? Are they likely to be retained so that we can have this robust university environment? We had people for that, right? You know, it used to be somebody else's job, student services or upper administration, they were the ones who cared about that. And now I think on both sides, We really are changing our vision. More and more forward-thinking faculty are saying, you know what, besides being a disciplinary expert, I want to become at least conversant with learning science. I want to become at least conversant with the science of academic persistence. There is a robust literature on this. And that's something that we've been working on at NAU over this last year as well, kind of an exciting newer project that I like very much. We've started to engage faculty in a new faculty development program called Persistent Scholars. And this is there to really speak to people's academic and evidence-based side, as well as get them to engage in some perspective taking around things like the challenges that students face and what it's just like to be a student at our institution. We do some really selective readings in the area. We look at things like, mindset, belongingness. These are really hot areas in that science of persistence and that emerging field. But we have not look at it in a really integrated way. It's easy for people to say, just go to a workshop on mindset. And that's a nice concept. But we want them to think about it in this bigger picture and really know what are some of the trends of thought and why. Where do these concepts come from? What's the evidence? That's something that I think is another real trend. And I think as well, we will see more academic leaders and people in and support roles all over universities needing to know more about learning science. There are still some misconceptions that persist, as we've talked about. We're making progress in in getting rid of some of these myths around learning. But I will say, I'm not going to name any names, but every now and again, I will hear from somebody who says, oh, well, we need to match students' learning styles, or digital natives think differently, don't you know? And I have to wonder whether that's a great thing. I mean, these are oftentimes individuals that have the power to set the agenda for learning all over a campus. Faculty need to be in the retention arena. And I think
0: that leaders need to be in the learning science arena. It's a boundary that's breaking down and it's about time. One of the things that I thought was really exciting with the reading groups that we've been having on our campus that we started with your book, but then we've read Make It Stick and Small Teaching Sense is that a lot of administrators and a lot of different kinds of roles engaged with us in those reading groups. It wasn't just faculty. So it was a mix of faculty, staff, and some administrators. And I think that that was really exciting. For people who don't have the luxury of being in your Persistence Scholar program, what would you recommend they read to get started to learn more about the science of persistence?
2: I really, even after working with it for quite some time, I love the core text that we have in that program. Which is Completing College by Vincent Tinto. It's just got a great combination of very passionate and very direct writing style. So there's no ambiguity, there's no whole lot of like, well, on the one hand, this and on the other hand, that. It's got an absolutely stellar research base, which faculty, of course, appreciate. And it has a great deal of concrete examples. So in that book, they talk about, OK, what does it mean to give really good support to first semester college students? What does that look like? And they'll go out and they'll say, here's a school and here's what they're doing. Here's what their program looks like. Here's another example that looks very different, but gets at the same thing. So that's one of the things that really speak to our faculty and that they've really appreciated and enjoyed. I think that as well, we've had some good feedback about work that's come out of the David Yeager and his research group on belongingness and lay theories. And lay theories is maybe a counterintuitive term for kind of a body of ideas about what students believe about academic success and why some people are successful and others are not, and how those beliefs can be changed, sometimes through relatively simple interventions. And when this happens, we see great effects such as the narrowing of achievement gaps among students who have... Of more privileged or less privileged backgrounds. And that's something that philosophically many faculty really, really care about, but they've never had the chance to really learn, okay, how can I actually address something like that with what I'm doing in my classroom? And how can I really know that the things that I'm choosing do have that great evidence base?
1: And I think that whole issue is more important now and is very much a social justice issue because with the rate of increase we've seen in college cost inflation, people who start college and don't finish it are saddled with an awfully high burden of debt. The rate of return to a college degree is the highest that we've ever seen, and college graduates end up not only getting paid a lot more, but they end up with more comfortable jobs and so forth. And if we really want to move people out of poverty and try to reduce income inequality, getting more people into higher education and successfully completing higher education is a really important issue. I'm glad to see that your institution is doing this so heavily, and I know a lot of SUNY schools have been hiring student success specialists. At our institution, they've been very actively involved in the reading group. So that message is spreading. And I think some of them started with your book and then moved to each of the others. So they are working with students and trying to help the students who are struggling the most with evidence-based practices. And I think that's becoming more and more common. And it's a wonderful thing.
0: So I really liked, Michelle, that you were talking about faculty getting involved in retention and this idea of helping students develop persistent skills and also administrators learning more about evidence-based practices. There's these grassroots movements happening in both of these areas. Can you talk about some of the other grassroots movements that are working towards or efforts that faculty are making to engage students and capture their attention and their excitement for education?
2: Right. And here, I think a a neat thing to to think about, too, is just, it's the big, ambitious projects, the big textbook replacement projects, or the artificial intelligence-informed adaptive learning systems. Those are the things that get a lot of the press and end up in the Chronicle of Higher Education that we read about. But outside of that, there is this very vibrant community and grassroots-led scene of developing different technologies and approaches. So it really goes back for a while. I mean, the Merlot database that I do talk about in in Minds Online has been a trove for years of little hidden gems that take on one thing in a discipline and come at it from a way that's not just great from a subject matter perspective, but brings up some new creative approaches. In the Merlot database, for example, there's a great tutorial on statistical significance and the interrelationship between statistical significance and issues like sample size. That's a tough one for students, but it has a little animation involving a horse and a rider that really turns it into something that's very visual, that's very tangible. And it really actually is tying in two analogies, which is a well-known cognitive process that can support the advancement of learning something new. There's something on fluid pressures in the body that was treated for nursing students by nurses. And it's got an analogy of a soaker hose that is really fun and, and is actually interactive. So those are the kinds of things. The set project, P-H-E-T, which comes out of University of Colorado, that has been around for a while, again, faculty-led and a way to have these very useful interactive simulations for concepts in physics and chemistry. So that's one. CogLab, that's an auxiliary product that I've used for some time in my cognitive psychology courses that simulates very famous experimental paradigms, which are notoriously difficult to describe on the page for cognitive psychology students. That started out many years ago, as a project that very much had this flavor of, we have this need in our classroom, we need something interactive, there's nothing out there, let's see what we can build. It has since been picked up and turned into a commercial product, but that's the type of thing that I'm seeing out there. Another thing that you'll definitely hear about if you're circulating and hearing about the latest project is virtual reality for education. So with this, it seems like, unlike just a few years ago, almost everywhere you visit, You're going to hear that, oh, we've just set up a facility. We're trying out some new things. This is something that I also heard about when I was talking to people when I was over in China. So this is an international phenomenon, and it's going to to pick up steam and definitely go some places. What also strikes me about that is just how many different projects there are. Just when you're worried that you're going to be scooped because somebody else is going to get there first with their virtual reality project, you realize you're doing very, very different things. So I've seen, for example, it used in a medical application to increase empathy among medical students, and. Um, I took a six or seven minute demonstration that just was really heartrending, simulating the, the patient experience with a particular set of sensory disorders. And at Northern Arizona University, we have a lab that is just going full steam and coming up with educational applications such as interactive organic chemistry tutorial that is just fascinating. We actually completed a pilot project and are planning to gear up a much larger study next semester looking at the impacts of this. So this is really taking off for sure, but I think there are some caveats here. We still really need some basic research on this, not just what should we be setting up and what the impacts are, but how does this even work? In particular, what I would like to research in the future, or at least see some research on, is what kinds of students, what sort of student profile really gets the most out of virtual reality for education. Because amidst all the very breathless press that's going on about this and all the excitement, we do have to remember this is a very, very labor-intensive type of resource to set up. You're not just going to go home and throw something together for the next week. It takes a team to build these things. And to complete them as well, if you have, say, a 300-student chemistry course, which is not atypical at all, these large courses, you're not going to just have all of them spend hours and hours and hours doing this. Even with a fairly large facility, it's a very hands-on thing to guide them through this process to provide the tech support and everything else. So I think really knowing how we can best target our efforts in this area so that we can build the absolute best with the resources we have and maybe even target them at the students who are most likely to benefit. I think that those are some of the things that we just need to know about this. So it's exciting. For somebody like me who's in the research area, I see this as a wonderful open opportunity. But those are some of the real crossroads we're at with virtual reality right now.
0: I can imagine there's a big wane that would have to happen in terms of expense and time and resources needed to start up versus what that might be saving in the long run. I can imagine if it's a safety thing that you want to do, a virtual reality experience like Saving people's lives and making sure that they're not going to be in danger as they practice a particular skill could be a really good investment. Spending the resources to make that investment. Or if it's a lot of travel that would just be way too expensive to bring a bunch of students to a particular location, but you could virtually, it seems like it would be worth the startup costs. And those are just two ideas off the top of my head where it would make sense to spend all of that resource and time.
1: And equipment will get cheaper. Right now, it's really expensive for computers that have Sufficient speed and graphics processing capability, and the headsets are expensive, but they will come down in price. But as you said, it's still one person typically on one device. So it doesn't scale quite as well as a lot of other tools, or at least not at this stage.
0: From what I remember, Michelle, you wrote a blog post about virtual reality experience that you had. Can you share that experience and maybe what stuck with you from that experience? Right. So I had the opportunity just as I was getting to
2: collaborate with our incredible team at the Immersive Virtual Reality Lab at NAU. One of the things I was treated to was about an hour and a half in the virtual reality setup that they have to explore some of the things that they had. And Giovanni Castillo, by the way, is creative director of the lab, and he's the one who was so patient with me through all this. We tried a couple of different things because of course there's such a huge variety of different things that you can do. There's a few things out there like driving simulators that are kind of educational, they're kind of entertainment. I mean, he was just trying to give me, first of all, just a, a view of those. And I had to reject a few of them, I will say initially, because I am one of the individuals who tends to be prone to motion sickness. So that limits what I can personally do in VR. And that is yet another thing that we're going to have to figure out. At least informally, what we hear is that women in particular tend to experience more of this. So I needed, first of all, to go to a very low motion VR. I wasn't going to be whizzing through these environments. That was not going to happen for me. So we did something that probably sounds incredibly simplistic, but that just touched me to my core, which is getting to play with Google Earth. You can spin the globe and either just pick a place at random or what Giovanni told me is, you know, I've observed that when people do this, when they have an opportunity to interact Google Earth, they'll either go to where they grew up or they'll go to some place that they have visited recently or they plan to visit. So I went to a place that is very special to me that maybe doesn't fit into either one of those categories neatly, but it's my daughter's university, her school. And I should say, Say that this is also a different thing for me because my daughter goes to school in Frankfurt, Germany, an institute that's connected to a museum. So I had only been to part of the physical facility, the museum itself, and it was a long time ago and part of it was closed. It was a holiday. So this was my opportunity to go there and explore what it looks like all over. And so that was an emotional experience for me. It was a sensory experience. It was a social one because uh, we were talking the whole time and he's asking me, questions and what kinds of exhibits do they have here? And what's this part of it? so that was wonderful. And it really did give me a feel for, all right, what is it actually like to be in this sort of environment? I'm not a gamer. I don't have that same background that many of our students have. So it got me up to speed on that. And it did show me how just exploring something that is relatively simple can really acquire a whole new dimension in this kind of immersive environment. Now, the postscript that I talked about in that blog post was what happened when I actually visited there earlier in the year. So I had this very strange experience that human beings have never had before, which is this, I don't know whether to call it deja vu or what, of going to this setting and walking around the same environment and seeing the same lighting and all that sort of stuff that was there in that virtual reality environment. But this time, of course, with real human beings in it and the changes, the little subtle changes that take place over time and so forth. So how does it translate into learning? What's it going to do for our students? I just think that time is going to tell. It won't take too long. But I think that these are things we need to know. But sometimes just getting in and being able to explore something like this can really put you back in touch with all the things we love about educational technology.
0: I think one of the things that I'm hearing in your voice is the excitement of experimenting and trying something. And that's, I think, encouragement for faculty in general is to just put yourself out there and try something out, even if you don't have something specific in mind with what you might do with it. Experiencing it might give you some insight later on. Might take some time to have an idea of what you might do with it, but having that experience so you understand it better could be really useful.
1: And that's something I that could be experienced on a fairly low budget with just your smartphone and a pair of Google Cardboard or something similar. Basically a 7 to $12 addition to your phone. And you can have that experience because there's a lot of 3D videos and 3D images out there on Google Earth, as well as on YouTube. So you can experience other parts of the world and cultures before visiting. And I could see that being useful in quite a few disciplines.
0: So we always wrap up with asking, what are you going to do next? I
2: continue to be really excited about getting the word out about cognitive principles and how we can flow those into teaching face-to-face with technology, everything else in between. So that's what I continue to be excited about, leveraging cognitive principles with technology and with just rethinking our, our teaching techniques. I'm going to be speaking at the Magna Teaching with Technology Conference in October. And so I'm continuing to develop some of these themes. And I'm, I'm very excited to be able to do that. I'm right now also right in the early stages of another really exciting project that has to do with what we will call neuromyth. So that may be a term that you've run across in some of your readings. It's something that we we touched on a few times, I think, in our conversation today, the misconceptions that people have about teaching and learning and how those can potentially impact the choices we make in our teaching. So I've had the opportunity to collaborate with this amazing international group of researchers who's headed up by Dr. Kristen Beth of Drexel University. And I won't say too much more about it other than we have a very robust crop of survey responses that have come in from not just instructors, but also instructional designers and administrators from around the world. So we're going to be breaking those survey results down and coming up with some results to roll out probably early in the academic year. And we'll be speaking about that at the Accelerate Conference, most likely in November, that's put out by the Online Learning Consortium. So we're right in the midst of that project and it's going to be so interesting to see what has the progress and what neuromyths are still out there and how can they be addressed by different professional development experiences. We're continuing to work on the Persistent Scholars Program on academic persistence. So we'll be recruiting another cohort of willing faculty to take that on in the fall at Northern Arizona University. I am going to be continuing to collaborate and really work with and hear from John and his research group with respect to the metacognitive materials that they're flowing into foundational coursework and ways to get students up to speed with a lot of critical metacognitive knowledge. So we're going to work on that too. And I like to keep up my blog and work on, shall we say, longer writing
0: projects, but we'll have to stay tuned for that. Sounds like you need to plan some sleep in there too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's wonderful talking to you and you've given us a lot of great things to reflect on and to share with people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure.
2: An absolute pleasure. Thank you.
1: If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page.
0: You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. The music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance from Nikki Radford.